How will AI shape society? And how will society shape AI? AI for Society Dialogues explores the work of researchers from the University of Alberta, a global leader in artificial intelligence research. This season, AI for Society partners with Precision Health to learn more about the ways in which AI technologies are shaping the future of healthcare and the exciting advances being made in digital health. A stethoscope is a functional device used to examine a patient, but it's also become an enduring symbol for the use of technology in patient care. Yet when it comes to advances in technology, what might a new 21st century stethoscope look like? Dr. Jacob Jeremko believes that with AI-enabled technology, we can transform medical imaging at the point of care. Dr. Jacob Jeremko is a pediatric and musculoskeletal radiologist who is an associate professor and AHS endowed chair in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Alberta. He's also a Canada AI chair and CIFAR fellow. Dr. Jeremko has been working with artificial intelligence since 1999 completing his PhD thesis in biomedical engineering. More recently, he co-founded Meadow, one of Alberta's most promising health tech startups, and he joins me today on AI for Society Dialogues. Dr. Jeremko, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Well, since this podcast is part of the AI for Society Signature Research Area in partnership with Precision Health, I'm asking all of our guests, what does artificial intelligence mean to you in the context of precision healthcare and medicine? Well, I think that artificial intelligence um, is a tool that can uh, augment and supplement the expert human uh, physician and clinician intelligence in providing uh, more precise uh, health care to our our society. Um, effectively, uh, pr- um, expertise, human expertise is quite uh, scarce on the ground. It takes many years to get trained to be a specialist physician. And um, uh, if we have AI that's been trained to uh, perform similar functions or, or help understand things the way that these human experts can, then we can uh, bring their human expertise out to reach more people and uh, provide better care uh, all across the uh, all across the society. I love that image of scaling human expertise. That sounds fantastic. Now, you're renowned for your work using artificial intelligence and ultrasound imaging and diagnosis. But before we dive into your current work, I want to go back a bit and talk about your life as a busy medical student who also became interested in AI. Can you take us back a few decades and and paint that picture for us? What was your life like then? Sure. So I was in uh, medical school in Calgary, and uh, I had done civil engineering as an undergraduate degree. Uh, my, my PhD work that I had just started, I just started an MD-PhD program, and um, we were using uh, statistical methods to analyze uh, people's spines and uh, images of people's spines. There was this new tool called artificial neural networks, which uh, seemed to be a smarter way to do it than just statistics with linear regression. And uh, so I I looked into neural networks and uh, learned about how they work and uh, learned about genetic algorithms, which is a tool to pick indices for them. At that time, I mean, this was much more primitive tool. Um, It couldn't read the images directly. You know, nowadays we have uh, a much stronger um, computer hardware. But back then, this tool was able to mimic the function of a human neuron in a way that uh, uh, really made a lot of sense for the analysis we were doing. 
So I, th I thought it was a, a really interesting analysis tool back then and started programming in it in kind of the early days. And it's been quite exciting to see how it's uh, really exploded over the last five years in particular. So was there anyone else doing this kind of work at that time? Did, did you have a community at all? Or were you kind of like this lone pioneer or kind of working in this area? <laughs> well, I'd like to think I was a lone pioneer, but I wasn't. There was actually, it was kind of an early wave of uh, people trying out these neural networks. You know, the concept was that uh, it, like a human neuron, it can take um, it can take nonlinear inputs. So you send in a bunch of inputs into the neuron. And um, once you reach a certain threshold, then it fires and sends on an output. And that... Uh, that approach was, um, you know, being used in multiple fields. And um, I was just, you know, one of a group of people applying it in, uh, in an early way. So yeah, I wasn't alone in it, but there, you know, it was, it was a smaller crew back then, for sure. <laughs> now, your educational background is also quite diverse. Um, you did your undergrad in civil engineering, followed by a medical degree, and then a PhD in biomedical engineering. I'm wondering about this idea of diversity, both in education and uh, societally, when it comes to advances in a field such as medicine. How do you think about diversity and innovation? Well, I I think diversity is absolutely crucial to innovation. I think uh, the the way to produce innovation uh, most reliably and effectively is to take people of different backgrounds, smart people of different backgrounds, and put them in the same room looking at the same problem. And then uh, everyone looks at the problem a little differently. And um, it's almost the definition of innovation in a sense that you take uh, is taking people from all different places and um, everyone sees it differently. And when you explain to each other how you see things differently, then um, then new ideas come out of that. So I think it's absolutely crucial. Did it help for you to have that engineering background in talking to your uh, computer science uh, colleagues or how did that work for you personally? Yeah, for me, it was crucial because my engineering background gave me the skills to be a computer programmer myself and think in that uh, uh, there's a way that, you, that, that you're taught to think problem, you know, the problem solving approach from that can be applied to the, uh, the content in uh, biology in the human body, um, basically taking an engineering approach to analyzing um, biological problems. So yeah. for me, it was that's, that's the secret of uh, where I've got to anyway. So you've obviously recognized quite early on that machine learning could be useful uh, in diagnostic imaging and analysis and, and possibly just in medicine in general. Um, can you kind of walk us through how has technology evolved to make this possible? What did that evolution look like? That's best explained by the difference between uh, neural networks in 1999 when I was doing my PhD thesis and now. So back then, um, the neural network was a tool that you could program on your computer, which would have a set of nodes and links. And you might have three layers and inputs. You would put in 20 different numbers. And at the end, you'd get out one or two different numbers. So you'd put in 20 different indices or values. And at the end, you might get a sort of a one if it was yes or a zero if it was no. And so I spent a year and a half of my thesis work uh, de deciding, narrowing down the inputs to figure out what the what 20 numbers I should put into the network. Nowadays, the technology has evolved so that these networks are so strong um, that you can actually input into it every pixel of a picture. So like an, an image, you know, a medical image, say an X-ray or an ultrasound, you can put in a 512 by 512 pixel matrix, every pixel as an input. So thousands, you know, uh, thousands of different inputs and different layers and different architectures of this network. It's basically like 
so now you can read the entire image. So I could have replaced my entire first year and a half of my thesis with just this new this new technique. So the, the computer uh, power has just vastly increased and people have come up with very clever ways of doing convolutions and kernels to um, interpret that, like to work their way through this vast amount of data. So um, it's just really been in the last five years that, uh, that the advance kind of exploded uh, and we're able to uh, cross that threshold into reading images directly. That's amazing. I'm having this image of you trying to come up with like the 20 criteria that you're going to narrow in on. And, and those are going to be the things that will then feed that primitive neural network. Yeah. Um, you mentioned compute power and just the, how this has all evolved in the last five years or so. Is it really just about faster compute power or is there other things at play that are enabling this revolution? Oh, yeah. Well, it, it, it requires um, these clever tools for uh harnessing that power. So you have to, where a lot of the advances are right now, I think, um, is in uh, is in network architectures and structures where, where you, uh, you know, different types of layers, different ways that you can take the, uh, the data and uh, distill it down and synthesize it from a large amount of data into something more manageable, something that a human can understand or explainable AI. Um, and even if a computer, if even if a human can't quite understand how it works, at least um, it's done in a way that um, transforms the data in a useful fashion. So it's it's not just the raw power; like it has to be harnessed by very clever uh, approaches to use that data effectively. Yeah, I actually want to go back to the introduction that we read about this idea of a 21st century stethoscope. And this is something I've heard you talk about in other media interviews. And you've talked about this idea of a handheld portable ultrasound device. Can you explain a bit more about what you mean by this and what you envision? Okay, so when um, before any modern technology, when you have a doctor hundreds of years ago, you know, in the say in Greece, for example, the doctor has ears and eyes and hands. So the doctor can can feel it can do a physical examination, they can hear the history of the patient, what the patient tells you about what's going on. So to try and make a diagnosis and decide what's going on, those are your tools. Now, in the 19th century or 20th century, we developed a stethoscope, a tool that you can put in your ears and listen inside the chest. And so you can listen to the heart, you can listen, hear the heart beating, hear the, hear the blood washing through it, and you can listen to the lungs. So that's a very powerful and um, allowed huge advances in diagnosis of cardiac disease and lung disease. But now we have something far more powerful, which is the ability to actually look inside the body and see things. So you can um, use an ultrasound to see to see a tumor, to see fluid around the heart, to see uh, pneumonia, to see uh, gallstone, to see cancers, to see uh, tears of tendons, and all of these things you can see with an ultrasound machine. And the amazing thing about it compared to other types of medical imaging, uh, if you think about a CT scanner or an X-ray machine or an MRI, these are huge, bulky, multi-million dollar uh, apparatuses. Uh, but an ultrasound um, can an ultrasound probe is is the size of a smartphone, and can be plugged into a smartphone nowadays. And so this is a tool you can really walk around in the ward. You can have it in the in your trunk of your car. You can have it anywhere. And so it's it's a tool that allows us, if it's used properly, to look deeper into the body, to see more inside the body, and extend those traditional tools of your eyes and ears and hands to make diagnoses. So I think it's a very exciting new tool uh, if used properly. 
Wow, so much to unpack there. Um, I'm, I'm kind of getting this impression of kind of moving from a, a kinesthetic kind of diagnosis process to maybe one that was more based on audio to something that's more visual now, just kind of this progression that, that's really interesting to observe. Mm -hmm. But yeah. I'm also thinking about the tricorder on Star Trek as you're describing this device. Um, is, it, is it anything like that? Or what, what are you envisioning for the future possibilities <laughs> of this device? Well, we often, when we do slides, uh, we put up pictures of from Star Trek. So it is it is the closest modern equivalent of the of the tricorder concept for sure. That's what we were thinking of. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And so when we think about um, uh, these sort technological advances like the stethoscope that allow for huge leaps in healthcare. You know, I guess I'm just kind of curious about um, how, how, first of all, how far away are we from this? Is this a reality? Is this still somewhat a little bit science fiction? And then where is this taking us? What does this mean in, in the context of how we actually practice medicine or, or receive healthcare? What does that mean for both the patient and the clinician in this relationship? So first of all, the the hardware is not science fiction. We really do have these little uh, these little ultrasound probes exist right now, and the software is not science fiction either. Um, I know that my startup company has developed uh, some software uh, that works uh, in this in this field as well, and lots of other. Uh, there are several other uh, companies working in this space. But what is uh, it, we're not at a stage where this can be generally clinically applied because we haven't, uh, the software is being developed on data sets and uh, being pilot tested, but we're, it's a long, still a ways before it's something that is universally accepted and validated and every medical student gets handed one of these, one of these devices like their stethoscope when they, when they go through training. And I think it's very important to um, kind of like vaccine development, you kind of need to, you know, <laughs> go a little bit slow and test it out and make sure that it's working properly. Yeah, make sure we have our due diligence in place before we get there. And and do you think it will also progress to the consumer level? Like, will this be an, another app on our smartphone that we're able to have some level of self-diagnosis that then we can consult with a, a physician on? Or do you, do you think it will get to that level? Well, it, there's potential in certain applications. I mean, the hardware is so inexpensive, like the butterfly probe, for example, is being marketed to just to consumers as well. You can say it's $1,000 or $2,000 and you can buy one. I sometimes get nervous about that because um, the ultrasound, the pictures you see on ultrasound are, are complicated to interpret. Uh, they're produced by rules of physics uh, from sound waves that are quite different than the rules that are that are a visual light, a visible light that we're used to seeing. And it's complicated for people to interpret. So having everybody do it, scanning themselves with an ultrasound machine is kind of a, a bit of a recipe for trouble because people will see things they don't know what they are. And, and you know, so I'm not sure that like, we're certainly not going initially to consumers. I think that this is a, a tool for medical personnel to use. Um, it may be ultimately down the road with appropriate AI assistance to help consumers or people understand what they're looking at. We may be able to, uh, to get there. But uh, I think at this point, we're looking to train people who have some understanding of you know, medicine or healthcare and, and how the body works to look at the images. Right. Well, let's talk a bit more about your startup. You've mentioned it a couple of times. Um, it's called Meadow. And can you tell us a little bit more about what your startup is all about? And also, why did you decide to become an entrepreneur? 
maybe I'll go the other way around and answer that first second question first is that so I've been um, I've been uh, an academic since 1999 you know I got my PhD in 2003 and I've I have over 175 papers published and I've been to many conferences and you know um, got some grants and sort of followed the whole usual academic career and it's been going really well uh, in general and um, I have found that my publications and presentations you know, they, they lead to academic success and improvements in my CV, but they don't necessarily produce any real impact sometimes. I just feel, you know, I, I've, um, when I had the opportunity to, uh, to help co-found this startup, um, what made me excited about it was its chance to really bring these tools that we're developing or these innovations out into the world and actually have an impact and make a difference and uh, improve healthcare for, uh, for the people around. So, uh, I think that uh, in this space, a person needs to, um, uh, like these tools cannot just be academic uh, institutional things. They have to be out there in the world in a uh, entrepreneurial fashion. And that's, I'm not naturally particularly good at being an entrepreneur, but I've, but I've had to, uh, but I've, I've been learning quickly and um, I'm surrounded by some very smart people who can, uh, who can do better the stuff that I can't. And I think it's uh it's the right way to have an impact. Fantastic. Well, before we talk more about Meadow and what it does, I, I have one more question about being an entrepreneur. So what has been the most challenging thing for you in terms of becoming an entrepreneur? Um, so many to choose from, but I think, <laughs> but one challenge, one challenge that would be for someone in my position as an academic becoming an entrepreneur is navigating uh, issues of conflicts of interest and issues of uh, institutional regulations and, um, all the various frameworks to try and uh, make sure that I'm doing everything in, in, in a transparent and ethical and appropriate fashion. There's a lot of uh, a lot of hurdles and hoops to be jumped there to try and make sure that I'm doing doing everything in a way that is 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 suitable and appropriate. Right. Well, let's talk a bit more about Meadow. Uh, maybe I'll start out by asking a bit more about the team. Uh, so you're one of the co-founders. If you could tell us a bit more about the team of people. Uh, behind Meadow, and then maybe segue into the work that you're actually doing as a company. Okay, sure. The the, the main co-founder and CEO is uh, Dornush Zanubi, who is a, um, uh, she was originally my star postdoctoral fellow. She uh, came to me um, uh, in 2014 as a postdoc from uh, a very, uh, you know, illustrious academic uh, reputation and career. And um, we worked really well together for those three years. And then, uh, and then she got the bug to do um, to do something more entrepreneurial. And she, instead of uh, taking my job offer for to continue on in 2018, she said, nope, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to Singapore. I'm going to an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur boot camp, the EF um, incubator. And, uh, you know, would you be willing to, uh, to support me in this? And uh, I was, uh, I was very happy to, I think. Uh, and she, a, a third co-founder came on board named Jivesh um, and he is a radiologist in Singapore who's a very forward-thinking guy and has uh, uh, a lot of connections and a lot of uh, great ideas. And so the three of us are the uh, co-founders of Meadow, and um, we had it at our, in our heads uh, that we would uh, tackle particularly ultrasound because of this vision of the uh, 21st century stethoscope and have two radiologists and a computer scientist uh, working on this uh, very specific um, medical imaging analysis dream um, 
was kind of the nucleus from which we've developed, uh, I think, quite a quite a nice, rapidly expanding and uh, very interesting uh, company to really have an impact. And tell us a bit more about the actual technology itself, and and maybe a bit more about who who do you sell this technology to? Um, what what are the uses uh, for this technology? What does that look like? So um, what we're working on um, at Meadow, and uh, this this is really a, quite a close offshoot to my academic research focus, is a tool that takes ultrasound images of certain body parts or certain clinical situations and um, runs it through an artificial intelligence network, which helps to understand what the pictures are showing and can suggest a diagnosis uh, or can suggest a management, uh, you know, suggest that, well, this patient, maybe not suggesting a specific diagnosis, but saying this needs further assessment more definitively. And more recently, we've got quite a bit into um, helping people uh, take pictures that are better quality as well. Because often, if you're just holding the ultrasound probe, you don't know what you're uh, what you're doing with it. And um, you can have feedback tools which can help you take better pictures that are more representative of the body parts that you're trying to image. And these people who are taking the pictures, is, is this, again, within the medical profession, other radiologists, other doctors, or who's actually using your tools? Right. So the people using it, um, it can be uh, physicians, for example, in the emergency room, point of care, uh, uh, you know, you can have a community health physician. It can also be people who are paramedical. So people who are, um, they're not physicians, but they've been trained with some medical knowledge. And this is, we think, an exciting place. Um, you know, sonographers, people who are professionals at using ultrasound already are early adopters and are also the people that we use as kind of evangelists to help us, uh, you know, tell the story about it and to train other people like nurses or um, assistants in clinics to do scans so that we can extend the reach of ultrasound to not just traditionally the people who, the ultrasound techs who normally do it or the physicians who normally uh, would help out. So let's turn now and talk a bit about artificial intelligence and ethics. It's something that we've touched on uh, a little bit, but we haven't delved into. Um, I know that you were the lead author of a white paper on AI and radiology, and one of the big issues it addressed was AI ethics. What do you think are the most pressing ethical issues around the use of artificial intelligence and deep neural networks in diagnostic imaging? Certainly, I have uh, quite a strong interest in this. There are there are several issues that are important here. One that's um, one that's really central to using any medical images is the issue of data privacy and confidentiality. And I think that's um, it's crucial because medical images are such an intimate look inside your body. Like what could be more private than what your body looks like inside and what things you have in your body? And uh, there, the DICOM data format that we use to produce medical images is just littered with personal data. Like, you know, you, you, you may not realize it, but the, you know, if someone does a, um, a CT scan, then the, the header fields of that data um, not just include the images, but they also sometimes include things like, you know, your name and well, obviously they include your name, but they'll include um, your weight, your um, address, the referring physician's address, whether you're pregnant or not. Um, you know, they, they include a lot of information you might not necessarily want just anyone to know. And then, of course, the actual pictures, 
Um, you know, if it's of the if it's a, a, an image of the head, then it can be reconstructed to show your face. So even if your name was hidden, you can you can reconstruct it to see the person's face. And if it's the body, you can reconstruct it to show the skin surface. Or you can uh, or you can look at it and say um, what organs or tumors you've got. Um, so it's very very intimate information. There's a lot of concern about how to properly anonymize that data, and um, uh, related to that is the question of are the people who had these pictures taken willing and able to consent to it being used for this analysis? So if you come into the hospital and you've got abdominal pain and you get a, an ultrasound uh, to look at why you might have abdominal pain, you probably think, well, the, the doctor did, you know, the, the ultrasound was done, it was read by the radiologist, and then that result is used to treat you. But there's a secondary use now that's being done on a vast bulk scale in many studies, both for research and commercial purposes, to take that data and aggregate it with that of thousands and thousands of other patients and uh, use that to train neural networks. Now, you could say there is potential for good there because that training for neural networks can train the AI uh, networks to for good, right? So it can help people to make diagnoses and to help you to get better precision care. Uh, but it could also be seen as, well, we're using this data to um, enrich large corporations. You know, you're taking this to, to uh, um, just this data that is your personal information is being used to increase the wealth of entrepreneurs. So it's almost, some people see it almost as a data theft. It's very important to navigate that appropriately and say, how can we control the use of the data? How can we say, you know, um, it's not practical for every person to give consent for every single use of its data, uh, of their data, but can we give a kind of a, like there are different kinds of consent that we can look into. Uh, can you give a kind of broad consent where you come in and say, I acknowledge that this data may be used, to, uh, you know, anonymously to help train uh, artificial intelligence networks. You know, maybe that should be part of when you're admitted to hospital or come to the emergency room, you tick a box that says something like that. There's a, so data privacy, confidentiality, and consent are this kind of web of, uh, uh, of very important issues that have to be dealt with carefully and sensitively to work appropriately with uh, medical imaging data in particular. If I'm understanding correctly, it sounds like right now there aren't a lot of mechanisms or maybe any mechanisms in place to offer a proactive level of consent to have data used in, in these research scenarios. Um, but if you could be, tell us a bit more about what, what are some of the conversations that are taking place when it comes to figuring out how to enact some level of consent? What are those ethical conversations look like and, and who's at the table having these conversations? The issues of uh, uh, ethics of consent and, um, and pri data privacy are being dealt with at very high levels. Uh, it, you know, at, uh, for example, the GDPR is the data protection re regulation in the European Union. And this is a very sweeping, uh, you know, multi-governmental uh, initiative, which, uh, which is very, very strict on how data should be protected. And then equivalently, uh, you have uh, you have tools at the um, basically at national regulatory levels. So in uh, in the United States and uh, in Canada, it's the Tri Council Agency, um, uh, which is uh, CIHR and NSERC and the uh, equivalent Social Sciences Agency, and they determine um, kind of policies and guidelines as to how data is used, and they come up with different answers. So it's interesting to navigate as a researcher because. For example, in the European Union, the GDPR says that data is private, 
even if it's completely anonymized, like it's it's just pictures, you know, say an ultrasound images of someone with no information attached at all, that info, that's still private data and cannot just be, you can't just do whatever you want with it. But in the United States, it has been much more of a sort of a free kind of range, as long as it doesn't have identifiable information associated, if it's been anonymized, then it's kind of just publicly available almost. Like you can sign up to be part of the osteoarthritis initiative, for example, and download uh, you know, the, the information from 5,000 people's knees. Uh, it's, it's different all across the world, uh, the, the standards and regulations. And each re- each profession has its own regulatory body that is look has its own, you know, they're, they're provincial and federal regulators. So like in Alberta, there's the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta, which has an interest. And there's also um, nas- nationwide, each discipline of medicine will have its, uh, its interested group. So for example, I'm on the Canadian Association of Radiologists working group in this field. And uh, so we're, as radiologists, trying to figure out how we can approach these problems. So there are a lot of stakeholders from a lot of different uh, perspectives. And it's, it's kind of a, a big tangled mess because uh, there are just so many interests and so many different answers to similar questions. Yeah, it sounds very, very complicated. Uh, one of the questions I have is, where is the patient in all of this? Are there is a representation <laughs> for the end user, uh, this, the, the patient stakeholder? What does that look like? So physicians are always bound to be representing their patients. That's the role of the Canadian Association of Radiologists. Um, our group sees ourselves as, you know, representing the patient's interests in this. Like we, you know, the radiologist's interest is is there is a sort of a, an interest that radiologists have separate from patients, but our job as physicians is to manage that. Now in the CAR group itself, we have um, not just physicians as part of the group. We do have representatives from other, you know, as lawyers and ethicists and uh, people from other branches that are also thinking uh, of the patient first as well. It's hard to say to take one patient per se and say, you can be the representative. <laughs> That's quite a lot to ask of a patient, <laughs> but, uh, but certainly anyone who is a physician is, is, you know, effectively bound by the Hippocratic oath to think of patients first. And so that's, that's how we, uh, we try to keep that in mind. And I think that it's very important that, um, you know, we come up with a good approach for consent moving forward, because as it gets more well known that data is used in bulk for secondary purposes for AI, it really should form part of the understanding as you come in for a test. Anytime you contact medical care is the understanding that this data in anonymized form is, is potentially going to end up getting used. Uh, it's kind of like a terms and conditions, just like we sign on websites all the time. There's a terms and conditions of coming in for a contact with healthcare that there will be some some use like that. And then one final question in this area, just thinking about this from the context of being an entrepreneur whose company is working with large data sets. And how do you think about navigating those issues when it comes to your own business? We basically have to be very careful to not, um, I basically want to be, whatever I do, I want to be proud of. I don't want to be taking data that we should, we have no right to use or training a network using data that we shouldn't be using. I want to make sure that everything that we do is is done with the best standards of, of um, data protection and um, the best standards of consent that we have. So actually the project, the hip dysplasia project that we um, started with in Meadow, the initial, our main um, first project has been to prepare a tool to detect whether a baby's hips are normal or not. 
And so if the baby's hips are normal, great. And if they're not normal, then they can get treated for their dysplastic hips before they ever become uh, a problem later in life. And it prevents hip arthritis. So that, that was, that's the very first thing that got me going here and is a very exciting application. And I'm very proud of that, that the data that we have um, been using for training the AI actually was collected with that high standard of consent where we're talking to the patients saying, look, we are in a study individually getting them to, you know, um, to understand that we're in a study and that this data uh, could potentially be used for this kind of analysis. So that data was not just collected sort of, you know, behind anyone's backs kind of. That's data that we collected with the highest level of specifically, are you interested in being part of this study? And so I, mean, I feel very good about that. That's fantastic. It's, it's nice to have these positive examples um, to, to model what a gold standard looks like in this area. Dr. Jeremko, we've covered a lot of ground today. As we wrap up our time together, is there anything, any final words that you would like to share about any of this, about Precision Health, about your company, about your future work, anything at all? I guess I would close by saying that uh, AI and uh, the 21st century stethoscope is a, a tool that is potentially very powerful, very, very helpful in bringing high quality medical care places that it can't currently go and really democratizing uh, the experience of, uh, of healthcare. And I think that what makes me excited about it is that in, in Canada, we have, um, you know, if you live near a hospital and you're able to access it, then you can get excellent, excellent medical care, the, the finest in the world. But we also have these tiny communities in the far north where you have to fly hundreds of kilometers to get any medical care, uh, or people who live down the street from the hospital who are maybe uh, experiencing homelessness or uh, from different uh, uh, cultural or ethnic uh, um, sub subgroups which have a lot of trouble accessing good care. And I think that having a tool like a, a tiny uh, stethoscope, um, you know, a tiny uh, uh, portable ultrasound wielded by a, uh, a trained healthcare worker who is sensitive to uh, cultural uh, needs and is able to travel remotely, um, that tool can really bring expertise and uh, just the finest care that we can get, that we can deliver to people who actually aren't receiving it right now. So I think we can really extend the reach of. Uh, of uh, top quality medical care in our system to more people in Canada and throughout the world uh, using tools like this. Well, that is a lovely optimistic note to end our podcast on. Dr. Dremko, I just wanna say thank you so much for being here today on the podcast. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you, Katrina. AI for Society Dialogues is a co-production between AI for Society and Precision Health two signature research areas at the University of Alberta. Find out more about AI for Society at AIforsociety.ca and Precision Health on the University of Alberta website. You can find out more about me, Katrina Ingram, at ethicallyalignedai.com. This podcast was produced at the University of Alberta, located on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional homelands of First Nations and Métis peoples. Our technical producer is Corey Stroder, and our theme music is Seeing the Future by Dexter Britton. Special thanks to Callie Vitella for research and production support. Stay connected to AI for Society. Sign up for our newsletter at AIforSociety.ca.